0: Good. I was confused there for a second. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers. My name is John, and I am the youth director here at University Presbyterian Church. And it is my privilege and honor to get to share God's word with you. And so if you would turn in your Bibles to First Peter chapter 4, that is on page 1269 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, we're gonna, th- Our text for today is going to be First Peter chapter 4. Uh, verses 1 through 11. And you will find that between the book of James and the book of 2 Peter. And if you've gotten to Revelation, you've gone too far, turn back the other way and you'll get there eventually. And so Peter wrote this letter. Peter wrote this letter to encourage his readers, to exhort his readers, to offer his readers some hope. And I want to look at two particular ways in chapter 4 that I think he's doing this. And I think he's encouraging them to look at two things looking at the receiving of the gift of Jesus and then sharing the gift of Jesus. I think he does these two things um, to offer hope and encouragement to Christians in times of trials. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the text in its entirety, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to work. So here now, God's holy and inspired and life-giving word. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions and drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you alone are worthy of glory. Alone... To you is the dominion over all things. And you have sought us by your blood, by sending your son Jesus to die for us on the cross. We see this gift, teach us to savor this gift, teach us what it means to suffer well and have hope in you in the meantime. Father, help us to understand these verses. Holy Spirit, illumine our hearts and minds that we would know you and love you as we meditate on your word this morning. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your holy In powerful name, amen. Uh, If you were to come to my house and look in our playroom where our children spend most of their time, you would see uh, what could be only described as an unmitigated disaster. Um, It is chaos. It is crazy. There are piles of books. There's glitter everywhere. And out of that disaster, my children will frequently bring to me Maybe 15 different books. There's 100 books in there, but they only pick 15. And one of the books that they bring to me over and over again is this book, Just a Little Luck, by Mercer Mayer. This is part of the Little Critter series, if you're familiar. And Little Critter is this um, half-rodent, half-porcupine, half-guinea pig kind of person-like thing that experiences life and then writes these stories about them. And in Just a Little Luck, Little Critter finds a penny. And his friends gather around him and they say, well, was it heads or tails? Knowing that, of course, heads will bring little critter luck and tails, tails is unlucky. And little critter doesn't know because he's not very observant. And so he sees we're going to have to find out by what happens to me. And so soon enough after the ice cream, after the penny is found, an ice cream truck rolls up. Certainly, this penny was lucky, thinks little critter. And he gets his ice cream, but as soon as he gets his ice cream cone, the ice cream falls off. So certainly the penny must be unlucky. And this kind of thing happens throughout the course of the book where something good will happen. Little Critter will be sick and get to miss the day of school. But in that same good thing, something bad exists as well. He missed this class party that he was looking forward to. And so out throughout this entire book, Little Critter will kind of lament and and opine, I just need a little bit of luck. This is what he's looking for, this is what he's hoping in, as life kind of keeps hitting him with wave after wave. And this is somewhat analogous to the situation that Peter finds his readers in. You see, he was writing to people that we learn in chapter 1 are called elect exiles. You see, these people have been chosen by God on the one hand, they are elect But on the other hand, they are exiles. They are rejected and don't belong to their culture or community on the other hand. And so they are experiencing some significant and profound suffering as they go through life. And so Peter is writing this letter to the elect exiles to encourage them, to exhort them, to remind them of the gift that they have been given in Christ and how then they might share that gift with each other so they can have hope in this life as they wait for the world to come. So I want to look at those two things that Peter does in this chapter. Receiving the gift of Jesus, but then also sharing that gift of Jesus as he calls Christians to live in community together. So first things first, receiving the gift of Jesus. Now, as chapter 4 begins, Peter is continuing a line of thought that he began back in chapter 3. We know that because he uses the words since and therefore, so we want to look back a few verses to see what he's talking about. And if you look back a few verses, starting in verse 18 of chapter 3, you see that Peter is talking about Jesus, what he is, who he is, and what he's done. And he's beginning in chapter 4 to kind of smash Jesus and these people together. He's going to talk about what it looks like to have union with Jesus. And so the gift that we see in verse chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, is this gift of the suffering of Christ. And if you look back in chapter 3, verse 18, you see that Peter describes the suffering of Christ in this way. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You see, Peter is lifting the eyes of his readers to Jesus as the one who suffers as our substitute. You see, because Jesus suffered in the flesh, he died on the cross, he does two things. One, he atones for our sin. That means that all of the sin that you and I and these people here would have committed, that has all been wiped away, washed clean by the blood of Jesus because he suffered in the flesh for them. But the second thing that happens is that these people, these elect exiles, have been reconciled to God. They were once far off, they were once estranged, but now because Jesus suffered for them, they have been brought to God as a kind of spiritual union. And Peter describes and kind of paints this picture of this transfer, as it were, in verses 1 and 2, saying that for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, he writes in verse 2, but for the will of God. You see, because Christ suffered in the flesh, there has been this transfer From living according to human passions to living according to the will of God. You see, because of Christ's suffering, his people received this gift of a new king, a new home and a new people, a new way of life. And then Peter continues to paint this picture, kind of contrasting um, the life of a former life of Gentile paganism, that just means non Christian, non Jew, uh, with the new life in Christ. And so in verse 3, he gives this kind of overview, this uh, not exhaustive, but this kind of exempt, example patterns of sins that God's people would have been surrounded by. And he says. For the time that is past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. You see, Peter is explaining and reminding them that this is how you used to live before Jesus. You lived just like all these other people have. And he called that former way of life uh, ignorance in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 14. He called it futile in chapter 1, verse 18. And this futile, hopeless, and ignorant way led to certain death and judgment, as we see later in chapter 4. But Because of Christ's suffering, that's not their story anymore. They don't live that way. They don't belong to those people. They don't live in that way because of the suffering of Christ. And if you are in Christ, that is not your story either. If you are in Christ, you are made new, washed clean, and you are brought into a new kingdom, reconciled to the Father. And so Peter writes this to these elect exiles, reminding them that while they might be discouraged, while they might feel rejected, while they might feel like they don't have anything going for them, because of Christ's suffering, they actually have this way of life that is now not ignorant, but full of wisdom. They have this way of life that's not futile. It actually ends in glory with God through eternity. And so he's putting before them the glorious reality of what Christ has done for them, despite the fact that they're experiencing some suffering now. And so, because this kind of transfer has occurred, because they've been transferred from living in human passions to according to the will of God, they themselves are going to suffer in the same way that their Savior has suffered as well. You see, Peter in verse 1 uses this language of arm yourself with the same way of thinking. You see, he's preparing. His people. He's preparing his fellow Christians for the reality that if you have been born again by the power of Christ, you are going to suffer in the same way that your Savior suffered. And so, what Peter is doing here is that he's encouraging his readers to arm themselves with the same way of thinking, to look at Christ as a model, as as a moral example to follow. Now, I want to take a, a pause there really quickly and just kind of say that quite often in our stream of theology conservative reformed evangelical christianity we we look at the death of jesus we look at the life of jesus and we say jesus's death on the cross is the thing that deals with our sin it brings our redemption it gives us eternity in heaven with jesus yes amen that is true that is perfectly reasonable and understandable that is a picture that the bible paints but Another way that we can look at the life and death of Christ, his suffering in the flesh, we can look at that as a moral example or a model that we might seek to emulate as God's people. You see, when Peter is raising the eyes of these suffering elect exiles to arm themselves with the same way of thinking by looking at Christ, he's saying, look, what did you expect they rejected Jesus, they're going to reject you as well. And so he's preparing them for this reality. If the world rejected Jesus and mocked him, why would they not do the same thing to those who are united to him through faith? In fact, we read in verse 4 that, that um, this is specifically the issue that is, that is plaguing the Christians that Peter's writing to. It says in verse 4, with respect to this the fact that the Christians aren't living how they used to, the Gentiles are surprised when when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So Peter is saying, I know that they're looking at you. I know that they're laughing at you. I know that you don't belong where you are. But arm yourself with the same way of thinking that Christ suffered in the flesh and you who are united to him are going to suffer in the same way. And he qualifies this. He qualifies this in verse 1 saying, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Whoever has suffered in the flesh for the sake of Christ has been united to Christ in faith and therefore is free from the penalty of sin, but has to wait for the redemption and the freedom from the presence of sin throughout all eternity. So let me put it this way. When, When you look at these verses... Uh, It can be moderately confusing. The the language, the English and the Greek, are both a little vague. Who ceases from sin? And I think that if we look at our whole Bible, we know that Jesus never sinned. So we can't be talking about uh, Jesus in this context. We have to be talking about a different kind of suffering and a different kind of ceasing from sin. And so I think, and I'll say this with a loose hand, I'm pretty sure he's talking about Christians. And I think what he means is that if you are going to be willing to suffer for Christ in this life, in the flesh, I think that means that you actually love Jesus enough to be willing to be rejected for him like he was. And so what Peter is doing is he's preparing, he's commiserating, he's aligning himself and these suffering people with the Savior that suffered for them. And so Christians this gift of suffering, a suffering Savior, was for them, but it's also for you now. That if you have a, a Savior who suffered for you to bring Him to yourself, to bring you to Himself, you ought to be ready to suffer for Him in the present. And if you're not a Christian, this hope is not any different for you. The only hope that we have to make it through this life and the life to come is to, to believe in the God who loved you so much that he would send his son Jesus to die on the cross, that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not live a futile life, will not live an ignorant life, but will be with Jesus in glory. And so this is the gift that God has given his people, that Jesus would suffer for them in the flesh, providing an atonement, but also providing for them an example of what it looks like to suffer. But here's the thing, with any gift... If we really love it, we are going to be inclined to share it. Um, Most of us don't get gifts that we love and and hold dear, and we, we don't just hoard those to ourselves. We want to tell other people about them. We want to share that with other people. And so this gift of the Christian life is not just about you and Jesus in isolation. This gift of the Christian life is about you and Jesus and living out this life with other people in community. So that brings me to my second point. What does it look like to share the gift of Jesus? And so I think, again, it's a very natural thing to want to share that which has positively affected you. Now, it's almost New Year's. So it's almost time for resolutions. So all of us have something that we want to improve upon in ourselves. And how many times have you had these conversations in your life? Man, I really want to get my my diet in order. Have you tried paleo? Have you gone keto yet? Have you cut out all gluten and dairy? Or I really want to get, you know, go to the gym and get fit. Bro, you tried CrossFit? Have you got the Peloton bike? We've all seen the ads for that. Or you're saying, man, I really, this is going to be the year that I'm going to get my money in order. Financial Peace University. You got that? You know, we all are so quick to share with other people things that we've used that have improved our lives. We want other people to have those as well. And it is no different then, with Jesus, we need to be the kind of people that want to share the gift of grace that we 've been received that we have received through God and Christ, and how that has transformed that we need to live that out with each other and so Peter exhorts, encourages, commands Christians to share the gift that they have received in Jesus with each other and he does this in verse seven. I mean he begins with the end in mind when he, when he writes, "The end of all things." Is at hand. Now, when you hear that phrase, the end of all things is at hand, you probably have a picture in your mind of a crazy looking man with a sign and a megaphone shouting at you on the street corner, telling you to sell all of your possessions and move out to the desert, because Jesus is coming back real soon. And... That's wrong. That's not what Peter is doing here. That's not the image he wants you to conjure. Really what verse 7 is telling us, when he says the end of all things is at hand, is that Jesus has accomplished everything necessary for your redemption, for your transformation, and for your preparation for glory. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is everything you need for your eternity and for your present. And so, because Jesus has done that for you, how then should you live? And he starts off clearly in verse 7, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? So your spiritual life can be properly ordered. And therefore, you are able to actually have the freedom to live a God-centered life that is focused on other people. You see... When you are self-controlled, when you are sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, I think what he's intending to communicate is this reality that when you are striving to live a life dependent on God and prayer, you actually develop this capacity, you actually develop this ability to think about other people besides yourself because you're getting so, grow, you're growing so much in the affection for God, you actually grow in affection for other people. And so, Hear this very clearly. Peter's not calling us for self-control and sober-mindedness so that you might look like a good and holy and perfect and righteous little Christian. I don't think that's what he's doing. What he's doing is he's saying, be sober-minded and self-controlled so that you are not so compelled and controlled by anything else rather than Jesus, so you're actually able to love other people and share this gift that you have in Christ. For example, if you are a workaholic and you are at work all the time, how are you able to share anything with anybody else? If you're an alcoholic, if you're drunk all the time, or if you're only concerned with getting your next fix, how are you going to be able to share the love of Jesus you have with other people? If you are controlled by anything besides Jesus... You are going to be so consumed with selfishness and your own desires that you're not going to be free to share the gift that you have in Jesus. Think back to that list of sin in chapter in verse 3. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That is all radically self-centered stuff. That stuff is about getting what you want when you want it. And Peter is saying, if you want to share the gift that you have in Jesus, you cannot be controlled by your selfish desires. You must be sober-minded and self-controlled. So if you're struggling with something in your life or with this concept, I would urge you to ask yourself the question, how good are you at saying no? You might be really good at saying no. Obviously, you're not gonna, you know, you're gonna say no to sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. You might be good at saying no to that stuff, but how good are you at saying no to even things that might be considered good, like work, doing that extra thing for your boss, and neglecting your family at home, or spending that extra hour at the gym because you're really concerned about your fitness and not going home and taking care of your spouse or your children. You see, if you don't know how to say no, you're not going to be self-controlled or sober-minded and you aren't going to be able to share the gift of Jesus with other people. Now, the next thing that Peter does and the next thing he commands them to do in order to share this gift that they've received in Jesus is keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins and show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, these two commands, I think, are much more clearly other-centered as well. Um, At the very core, I, I like to call love a willingness to be inconvenienced. And hospitality, I think, is all about bringing other people into your world, giving them your stuff, letting them eat your food and sleep in your beds and use your Wi-Fi. Love and hospitality are profoundly uh, other-centered. And and I think the reason why he commands these things is that this doesn't come naturally, right? We are naturally like that verse 3, Self-centered, selfish, doing things that please ourselves. But he's commanding them to actually be other-centered by loving people. Laying down your preferences for the sake of somebody else's preferences. Be hospitable, actually bringing in somebody into your life that might not think like you. That might not look like you. That's actually going to inconvenience you by eating all the food in your cabinet or costing you money. You see, think about the Good Samaritan from Luke chapter 10. The Good Samaritan, uh, he was the wrong race, wrong ethnicity, wrong religion. But yet he was the one that Jesus says, this man is showing love to his neighbor because he stops. He willingly inconveniences himself. He takes time. He takes his money. He heals this man that has been beat by robbers. And he, he pays for this man to stay in a hotel. The Good Samaritan probably had something to do that day. He probably had something that he was planning on getting done, but yet he willingly inconvenienced himself to take care of this other person that he was supposed to hate because they were different ethnicities, races, and religions. You see, when Peter says, show love and hospitality, I think that's the kind of picture that he's painting. Be willingly inconvenienced by other people and let them use your stuff because you have been given such a great gift through God and Christ, who has inconvenienced himself, who has given you every riches imaginable in the heavens. So you need to arm yourself with the same way of thinking and live like your Savior lived for you. And so again, I think we need to routinely ask ourselves these questions. How often do we put the needs of other people ahead of our own? How often do we lay down our own preferences in favor of somebody else's? How often are we more concerned with making other people feel welcomed and and at home uh, than ourselves? When you show love and hospitality to other people, to Christians and non-Christians, you are sharing this hope, this gift that you have in Christ and you are living like your king. But living in community is one thing. I think there's also a a specific way we're called to live together, and that's uh, through doing church together. And uh, if you keep reading in chapter 4, Peter writes in verse 10, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And then he gives a couple examples of that. And I think what he's doing there is that he's actually shifting from a kind of day-to-day Christian life And he's moving more into a specific, this is how you do church and worship together. And so, I called this point, sharing the gifts of grace in church. Um, And I think a couple points of explanation are in order. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, Peter writes in verse 10. God's grace is actually for everybody. Everybody has an opportunity to contribute in church. No one ought to be excluded. There is no such thing as the JV, Holy Spirit. When you are a Christian, you are filled with the fullness of God's presence in you and you have something to contribute in church. You see, Peter calls this grace varied, um, as each has re- received a gift, used to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You see, God's grace is as big and as varied as there are kinds of people, and so everyone has a place to serve and be useful in the kingdom. And so he he displays that, he explains that in a couple different ways. Are you gonna are you gonna get up here and talk in church? you're going to teach the little kids you're going to teach the students you're going to are you going to preach if you're going to speak do it as one who is proclaiming the oracles of god not yourself do it as one who seeks to exalt the god who called you to this not as one who seeks to build his own platform of fame and skill So if you're going to speak in church, you've got to do it for God's glory rather than your own as you share this gift of grace. Well, are you going to be a little bit more behind the scenes? Are you going to serve? Are you going to be a deacon? Are you going to move chairs at church? Are you going to set up for the various ministries that we have? Are you going to make food for people? If you're going to serve in church, you're not going to do it with your own strength. Rather, Peter says, you're going to do it with the strength that God provides so that he might be glorified rather than you. And so if you're going to live together and worship together as God's people, you're going to need to share the grace that you have already been given to you through Christ Jesus. Peter calls us at the end of this chapter, stewards. Be a steward of God's varied graces. And I think one of the reasons he uses that word is because a steward does not own anything. A steward takes care of what he or she has been given. And so, you, Christian, just as these people are in 1 Peter, you need to understand that you are a steward of God's grace. You don't own it, it owns you. You are a steward, you need to share it as you have been commanded by your king. You are a steward, you are not an owner. And so this is not of your own works, this is a gift of God, so that no one may boast, Paul writes in Ephesians 2. This is something that God has done. Now, to be fair, this is no small thing that Peter has called us to do. This is actually quite a big deal. And so I want to encourage you, as I kind of work towards the closing here, I want to encourage you in this process, and I want to do that by saying this, you're going to fail. You're going to not do this right. You're going to show hospitality and you're going to grumble. Your love, at times, I guarantee you, will not be earnest. Uh, your service, it's going to be for your own glory rather than God. sometimes. When you talk in church, it's really hard to not uh, feel like you're glorifying yourself and rather than God. And so you are going to mess this up. You're going to fall short. You are not going to live out this life that Peter commands you perfectly. But... The good news of the gospel, the good news of the Christian life, is that despite the fact that your very best efforts are going to fail and that you are going to be faithless at times, you need to know that the hope that you have in this life and the life to come is not in how faithful you are, but rather how faithful your Savior is for you. You see, Paul writes in Second Timothy 2 that the one Jesus remains faithful to us even when we are faithless. Because he cannot deny himself. And if you and I are united to Christ through faith, then he cannot deny you. And so even though Peter is calling you, urging you, exhorting you, encouraging you to live in this radical way that is so different from the watching world, you're going to fail. But guess what? Your Savior never will, never has, and isn't going to fail you now. He will not deny you because he will not deny himself. So with all due respect to Little Critter and Mercer Mayer, you you need so much more than just a little bit of luck. And by God's grace, you have actually received so much abundantly more than you could ever imagine by a Savior who came to earth in the flesh, who died this atoning death to show us what it might look like to live in obedience to the Father. You see, this is the greatest hope that we can have, and it's the hope that is freely offered to us in the gospel. So, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, would you receive this gift of Jesus and share him with everyone? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are full of grace, full of truth, full of love, and full of goodness. Father, we confess that so often we are faithless. Our love is not earnest and We do things with so much grumbling and critical hearts. Father, forgive us for not trusting in you. Forgive us for wasting the gift of you and the gifts that you have given us through your grace. Holy Spirit, empower us to live in such a way that displays the goodness and honor and glory that we have been given through our King Christ Jesus. And Father, I pray that you would continually keep us humble but encouraged that we have a King who will not deny us because He cannot deny Himself. And we are truly united to Him through faith. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this all in your holy and powerful name. Amen.